This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is the podcast. We're trying to make the world, well, the economical world, that little bit more comprehensible and applicable and credible for Mr. Davis. How are you, Head? Like a bird out of hell, I'll be gone when I'm Okay, so that is John. By the way, John has got a very loud voice anyway. But when he does his meatloaf impressions, what did I do to deserve that? Last night, I was sitting up, flicking through the stations, and up comes this brilliant documentary on Bad Out of Hell. And do you remember Bad Out of Hell? Absolutely. You bought that album, I think, the same time as me. I think we both bought that album, and we both listened to it a lot. A lot and very loud. Very loud. I bought it down in Cork. On a Ferguson record player. <laughs> the last thing made in Bolton was bought by the McWilliamses. It was a pie or Ferguson yeah. record player. A three in one, John. Do you remember three that? Three in one. That's what a I was trying to think of. A three in one. one. But I, I bought that album and I remember it distinctly. It was about 1979. Yep. In Cork on the way back from Irish College in Ballangary. Oh, wow. That's very and specific. And I had a couple of quid over. And went into a, went into a record a shop. A golden disc, I hope. Yeah, and uh, there it was, and I bought it, and I brought and your it man home on, the, on a big motorbike. On the motorbike, and I played it constantly, and it's just so fantastic, so camp, and so over the top, and so Broadway. Because of course it was yeah. Jim Jim Steinman yeah. who who wrote all the, the the music, but it it all came flooding back to me last night. So you watched a documentary I on that? I watched the documentary, and Emma came in. And I said, Emma, you like Bowie, Queen. You Emma's like John's all daughter, the by the way. Emma's John's daughter, one of I his said, four daughters. You have to watch this. And she sat down. She got really into it. And so she's kn- now gone off to explore Meatloaf and Bad Out of Hell. You know the interest. I don't know if it came across. I also watched a documentary ages ago that Meatloaf was in, and he came across. He's a really nice bloke. Yeah. Really decent guy. Yeah. 
He was really decent to his fans, and he was, you know, extraordinary. But it, like, what is your favorite favorite track? Paradise from- on the dashboard. Right? I don't know. Each song is like a a mini opera in yeah. itself. But it was the way he performed it. He was totally, totally engrossed. In Do you know what thing. the mill- millennials would say? He was in the moment. In the moment. No, it was really good. <laughs> but you, what was interesting about it was it was actually recorded back in, I think it was 74. It took a long time for it to get to. Really? Yeah. It, was it wouldn't all- take off in America. But when they came to the UK, it was kind of make or break time. And they played the old grey whistle test. And they gave the most amazing performance, like real full on theatrical, the whole lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, who was presenting was Whispering Bob Harris. And you know, they finished, whatever it was. And Bob Harris went, Well, that was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Just typical Bob Harris. Do you know what the old great whistle test was about the name? Oh, no, go on, tell us. It was a test for musos, right? Yeah. That if a song was good, the old grey-haired men would whistle it. And that's where it comes from. Really? It's what Paul McCartney, either John Lennon said about the Beatles. He yeah. said, I don't mind if our songs are the sort of songs that postmen whistle to. Because it was so uncool, right? Yeah. So the old grey whistle test was, if the song is going to be a hit, yeah. old grey-haired men will whistle to it. And that's where it comes from. That's fantastic. Now, from the old great whistle test, bad out of hell, John is full camp. <laughs> Outrageous camp. We're going to talk about modern monetary theory. Oh, yes. <laughs> what a downer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, this is exciting stuff, John. It right? is, it is, it is. Last week, Joe Biden unveiled a $1.9 trillion package. And they're going to do more and more and more. What we're seeing is a revolution in economics, right? And one of the revolutionaries, one of the insurrectionists, is Professor Stephanie Kelton, who an old mate of mine who you know, who's been on the yep, show, right? Yep. She is the woman who has consistently and against all the sort of economic, the old grey whistlers, right? The economic <laughs> wise men, beard strokers, right? She said, no, 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 you've got your whole concept of economics and money wrong. We're going to embrace this MMT. She's written this book, which is an amazing book, The Deficit Myth. She and her thinking are behind this. She was Bernie's advisor. She's in Long Island. She's on the line. Let's talk to her. Stephanie, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm in flying form. I'm in great form. Now, tell me, I'm looking at Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion plan announced last week. And as far as I'm concerned, your fingerprints are all over it. It's your thinking. It really is. I mean, first of all, congratulations. And secondly, explain it all to me. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, I have to say, I am really delighted at the scale of this next package because, as you know, you know, and, and probably many of your listeners know, this isn't the first package that we've put together. This one comes on the heels of a number of other pretty significant, right? Back in March, when coronavirus really started to hit hard here, Congress moved several big spending bills, the biggest of which was known as the CARES Act. That was $2.2 trillion. And then we sort of dragged our feet. But at the end of last year, we got a $900 billion package through. And then just months later, here we are with $1.9 trillion. So we are 
definitely not repeating the mistakes of the 2008, 2009 uh, era where we did one big package and then went Congress went AWOL. Um, they keep coming back and recognizing that they have to stay engaged, that they have to provide fiscal support for as long as it takes. So I'm very, very happy with this. And I will say I am even happier that President Biden is referring to this as a down payment. In other words, he's coming back for more. We're looking at trillions of dollars more in proposed spending in the months ahead. So tell me, look, I mean, Lots of people listening will say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we were all told the deficit. I mean, I'm going to talk about Stephanie's book. And by the way, if you haven't read The Deficit Myth, pick it up, read it. It'll make you change. It'll change the way. JM over here, our Canadian producer, never studied economics before, picked it up, read it, and said, man, this really makes sense to me. So again, Stephanie's book, The Deficit Myth, on the David Mac Williams reading list for all podcasters <laughs> and all podcast listeners. But let's let's get to the core of this. People will say, Stephanie, what is happening to economics? That this idea that the deficit is the problem and we have to cut spending and to balance the books is being put to one side. And Joe Biden is saying, we're going a different way. Explain what's gone on in the thinking, in the logic, in the practicalities. Yeah, so Joe Biden has said things that I have not heard really an elected official, whether a congressman or a president, say in my lifetime. You know, he has stood up in speeches before the American public and said things like, the founders gave the federal government the ability to do what state and local governments can't do. They were wise. They gave us the ability to run deficits. And it's kind of like, wow, you're just wrapping your arms around this thing and embracing it, whereas politicians in the past have run from the concept of a deficit. It's supposed to be the thing that you know, is considered irresponsible and, and reckless. It's evidence of overspending and all that. So you're quite right that things are changing in a big way and that deficits are being now seen not as the problem, but as part of the solution to many of the problems that we face. So it is a big difference. Um, I think that in part, we're beginning to recognize that every deficit is good for someone. You know, the Republicans massively increased deficits with their tax cuts at the end of 2017. And why did they do that? Because they understand that deficits are this evil, dangerous thing. No, of course not. They did it because they understand that deficits are good for the person on the other side of the deficit. In other words, a deficit is just the government deficit, just the difference between two numbers. That is literally all it is. One of the numbers is how many dollars the government spends into the economy each year. And the other number is how many they subtract back out, mostly through taxation. So a government deficit just means they add more than they subtract. And when they do that, somebody gets a surplus. There is a financial surplus on the other side of every government deficit. So now Democrats are coming around to the recognition that, hey, why should the other guys have all the fun? How come they get to run deficits and produce surpluses for, for their guys? Yeah, for the for the big corporations, for the wealthiest people in this country. What if we were to turn those deficits in a different direction and produce the surpluses for the people who are most hurting in this economy? And that's what this COVID relief package does. This 1.9 trillion aims that bazooka, if you like, and fires those dollars onto the balance sheets, into the accounts of people in this economy, the middle class, the people, the poor, people who have really been struggling and hard hit in this in this pandemic and in the economic fallout. And so they're they're recognizing, hey, 
this deficit's going to be good for someone. Let's make sure it's good for the right group of people. Now, traditionally, once deficits rise, uh, two things happen. Normally, central banks have a little hissy fit. When I was educated in the central bank in Ireland, it was like deficits bad, and we react to deficits. And this is ISLM stuff from, you know, you know, basic undergraduate economics that we've got to react to these deficits because if you're spending money, it's taking money out of the economy. That means the interest rates will rise and that means other people's spending will be affected and people will be this crowding out, this this kind of mantra. What has happened to economics and to central banking in the United States in particular that has changed their mind? They said, you know what? We will facilitate this. Not only will we facilitate this, but we'll facilitate more of it. Well, David, you know that after 2008, after the financial crisis, what happened mostly around the world is that we didn't get a whole lot of support from governments. We didn't get fiscal packages. We didn't get fiscal policy playing a real durable and sustained role. What we did get were central banks that were left with all the responsibility. We pointed the finger at the central bank and said, you fix it. And Congress did that here. And poor Ben Bernanke is sitting there going, geez, it would be nice to have a partner around because we can't carry the full load. We need a partner. And he got really beat up in uh, sitting before Congress and testifying. They said, why aren't you, you know, why is it taking so long? Why isn't the economy recovering? And he said then, let me, I'll just quote him. He said, let me just say that monetary policy is not a panacea. He said, it is not even the ideal tool. Whoa, it's not the ideal tool. What do you mean? It's the tool, right? You guys are supposed to fix it. You have the dual mandate. It's your job to, you know, bring about a recovery and so forth. And there was Ben Bernanke saying, it's not the ideal tool. So where, what does that mean? What was he saying? He was saying the F word without saying the F word, fiscal. We need fiscal policy. So government spending, government going in and spending money. Absolutely. And he didn't get more. So, you know, the central banks just go all in. They did. And I'm sure you've talked about this on your shows, quantitative easing, one round, two rounds, three rounds, open-ended. We'll buy until we feel like the, you know, we, we can stop buying. And they just, you know, they did everything they could And the problem is, as Jerome Powell likes to say, the current Fed chair, the Fed can lend, but the Fed can't spend. So I think what's happened is that central banks are now more comfortable um, and candid about what they can and can't do. And the ECB and the Bank of Japan and uh, here with the Fed, central bankers themselves are literally crying out for help. They are saying to governments, we got to have you involved. It takes two if we're going to do this. So as you said, instead of fighting against the deficits, being very accommodative and recognizing that these policies work best in tandem, that if we both coordinate and provide all of the support that's necessary, we're going to get much better outcomes. And the last recovery, you know, it took us about seven years to claw back all of the jobs that were lost after the, you know, financial crisis and Great Recession. And we can't afford to do that again. It was a disastrous so-called recovery for tens of millions of people. So, you know, Biden wants to go much faster. He wants to restore jobs much more quickly. The Fed wants to see that happen. There's been more pressure on the central bank in terms of how aggressive the public expects the Fed to be in supporting job creation. And so I think just a lot of things are different now. So what about what about the hawks? Like you get it all said, oh, it's going, you have to pay, you have to pay all that back at some stage, right? This is what I hear when I when I even even when we're even discussing economics, which kind of sadly we used to do in the pub. 
which is A, sad that the pub is closed and B, maybe sad that we discussed economics. But there you go. <laughs> but lots of people would say, yeah, but what happens? That's all very well, but you've got to pay all this money back. Yeah, I think, you know, the problem is that we we think of the government's fiscal operations the way we think of our own personal finances. So we see the government issuing bonds and we say, ooh, that's borrowing. And then we see the bonds and we say, ooh, that's debt. And then we think about what it would mean for us if we were piling on debt and, and had to pay it back in the future. And, and then we'd start imagining things like, you know, hardship and having difficulty and having to rely on, you know, current income streams and paying it back. Oh, it, we could get into trouble. And so the the core of the problem really is thinking of what's happening to the government's balance sheets and their operations the way we think of our own. It's just fundamentally different. So in the book, I actually suggest that, you know, I have a chapter that's called the national debt parentheses that isn't. I don't think we should be referring to the outstanding stock of government bonds as the national debt. I don't think we should be referring to the issuance of bonds as borrowing. I think these words are inapplicable when we're talking about a government that spends it in its own currency. The, the purpose of the bond sale is not to finance the spending. By the time the bonds are sold, the spending has already taken place. So the bonds are doing something different. It's not about borrowing, and I don't look at them as debt. I would say it's better to think of the government as being able to issue two different kinds of money. They can issue green paper and they can issue yellow paper. And the yellow paper are the government bonds and the green paper is the cash, the currency. So really what's happening is the government is choosing to pay its bills in two different color pieces of paper. And now, in fact, there's no paper involved. It's all digital. So you've got a digital green dollar and a digital yellow dollar. And, you know, those treasury bonds that are out there are part of our wealth part of our savings, our financial savings. So when governments match up their deficit spending by selling bonds, we call it borrowing, but what's really happening is they're making payments with bonds. They're covering some of their expenses by issuing yellow dollars. And so there's really nothing to pay back. You just paid with a different form of your money. It's interest-bearing currency. So so ex explain to me, explain to me, because lots, lots of people are, are it's difficult. And I, I I absolutely get the idea that there is a profound conceptual difference between the individual household and the economy, the state. And unfortunately, for many, many years, the rhetoric of Mrs. Thatcher and people like this were, you know, well, if you get your own house in order, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then lots of people confused. But, but countries do go bust. This is the interesting. So explain what happens and why it's different now. Uh, like you take a country like Ireland, Ireland has had a number over the last 40 or 50 years of what they call fiscal crises. When the government deficit gets so big and what happens is the people think, well, those guys are going to default at some stage and interest rates go up. This happened all through the 80s, a little bit in the 90s, then again after the, after the Great Crash. Explain to me why this won't happen in the United States and then we can go on to other countries. Look, if if your obligation is to repay in a currency that you and only you can issue, then it should be sort of obvious that the risk of default, the risk of being pushed or forced into a situation where you cannot meet your obligation is simply not there. If, if you are 
the U.S. and your promise is to pay the U.S. dollar to a bondholder, well, you're the issuer of the U.S. dollar. You're always going to be able to do that. As Alan Greenspan said, the probability of default in our own currency, he said, is zero. Now, he used the phrase when he answered the question, why is that? He said, because we can always print money. And I don't use that phrase because I think, again, it confuses people and it's sort of a throwback to the gold standard era. But what he meant was you can always issue your own currency to repay those, those obligations. Now, can governments get into trouble borrowing in currencies that they don't issue? Sure. You look at Argentina, you look at Russia, you look at Venezuela and any number of other countries borrowing in a currency you don't control. Now you're on the hook to repay in something that you don't issue. Sure. So there is default risk. Okay, so you get a country like Mexico or Argentina that has borrowed all these dollars and then suddenly it has to come up with dollars, but it can't print the dollars as the Americans can. It's got to buy the dollars somewhere. And once you start buying the dollars in order to pay them back, then you've got to have goods and stuff to buy those dollars with. And very, very quickly, people might realize they don't have enough stuff to buy the dollars with and therefore they'll default in their debts. So I, I get that. Like, Can we talk about the European Union? Because we're in a very strange hybrid situation where we are part of a monetary union Ireland is, Italy is, Germany is. It hasn't kind of twigged that if you're an Italian or a Spaniard, you're actually using somebody else's currency. The euro, it, this is a strange situation we're in because nobody really thought this through, I think, at the time, okay? And, and now you realize that, you know, Greece is using Germany's money and it's got to come up with money that isn't its. Ireland likewise. Where are we in your... In, in your MMT deficit thinking? Well, okay, so every country in the Eurozone is a currency user, even Germany. So none of these countries can issue the Euro. That is only the ECB. Only the European Central Bank can issue the currency. So you are quite right to say that, you know, very early on when this project was being cobbled together and the Maastricht Treaty, which is the blueprint for the euro, when that thing was out there, only a handful really of economists looked at it and said, hang on, there's like a birth defect in this document. There's a design flaw. If you were making, if you were manufacturing airplanes or automobiles and you looked at your blueprint and you said, uh-oh, there's a there's a design flaw here. You wouldn't move forward and start rolling out, you know, cars and airplanes. You'd fix it before you start production. But they didn't do that. They went forward, introduced the euro on January 1 of 1999 with this flaw in place. And the flaw was that while you were creating a currency union, you know, one currency for all the countries, they didn't move forward with an analogous fiscal union. And so you were separating the monetary powers from the government's ability to spend. And a few of us pointed that out and said, gee, this is likely to lead to problems because you got governments now borrowing in currencies they can't issue. And at some point, financial markets are going to figure this out. And they're going to be like, wait, you want me to loan you euro and you might not be able to repay it because you don't issue the euro. So I'm going to need some extra compensation for the risk that I'm taking. So we call it a risk premium, right? Interest sure. rates go higher. So when the debt crisis took hold, really in 2010, Yields blew out. Interest rates went crazy. Greece was paying, I don't know, 40, 70% yeah, or whatever crazy, on a 10 year. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was because the Greek government had to borrow in a currency that it couldn't issue. So financial markets were in control. Now, Draghi obviously shut it all down with his three little words, whatever it takes. And he finally brought things under control. Fast forward 10 years to where we are now 
with coronavirus and the meltdown and Christine Lagarde at the helm at the ECB. And when interest rates started to move higher in the early phases of the pandemic, she said something like, it is not the job of the ECB to manage spreads. And financial markets went, excuse me, are we going to do this again? Really? And so she walked that back very quickly. And now we're in a situation today where basically I would say that the ECB, as the currency issuer, has effectively restored monetary sovereignty to the 19 countries in the now, Eurozone. This is a fascinating point. This is fa- I don't think people quite appreciate this yet, that the ECB has basically said, guys, we have your back. We, exactly. We will not allow you to get into a default downward spiral. This has been messaged, it's been signaled, it's not been explicitly said. But it changed the game profoundly because it means a country like Ireland shouldn't really be worrying about running a deficit in order to build homes or railways or, or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I mean, David, the thing is, you're you're quite right. And I think that between the emergency pandemic purchasing program, which is a bond buying program, the ECB, as you said, is backstopping the whole of the project. And they said to countries, go run deficits, spend what you have to spend, deal with the pandemic, deal with the economic fallout. We got you. We got you. And so you look at a country like Italy, where I think the debt to GDP ratio is right on its way to 170%. Yep. And the interest rate on Italian 10-year government bonds, last time I looked, was about 80, 85 basis points. Yeah, less so less than, than 1%, 1%. Less than 1%. Well below what they are in the US. Why? How can that possibly happen? Because the ECB is making it so. So the question is, I guess, and, and I would even call it a concern, at what point does the ECB withdraw that support and tell countries, now get your numbers back in line with stability and growth pack criteria. You need to yeah. be at 60% debt to GDP, not 170. And that would mean extremely harsh austerity, right? Governments would then be told to get your budgets back in line, make the cuts and so forth. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we've learned better but I, it keeps me up at night. But I tell you, you see, the problem with that is if that were to happen, two things happen. A, the governments have to cut back. But B, the financial markets think, OK, we're back in the 1990s now. We're back in the, well, we're back in 2010. And all bets are off. And you get a currency crisis. You get a current account crisis in Spain, in Italy, in Greece, of course, maybe in Ireland, right? So let us, let us tease this out because this is the nub of the issue. Do you think... And, I, and again, it's, I know it's Euro, Eurocentric at the moment, okay? Do you think that it's possible to walk back the situation, to actually get back to the growth and stability back, to actually get back to even saying to governments, you've got to cut back, given what we know will happen the next day? There will be a massive, massive monetary and fiscal crisis in, this, in, in the Eurozone. I don't know, David. I mean, self-inflicted pain is not something that, you know, I think that there is at least a chance. I think that's why I say it keeps me up at night. You know, maybe it would be a a slower moving project with attempts to get back to meeting those criteria over time or something. But on the other hand, I will say this. I will put the probability very, very low because I think that Christine Lagarde is also someone who does take very seriously the climate crisis. 
And she is talking about the things that the ECB can and must do in partnership, right, to allow governments to address climate change and so forth. So that suggests to me that um, they may find ways around the austerity and to continue to provide the fiscal support. And, you know, it's, it's obviously all politics. There's nothing in the economics to prevent the ECB from continuing to play this supportive role. It's the politics that are difficult. And that's where I think, you know, I get a little bit nervous because we've seen certain governments really dig their heels in in the last crisis and demand that people conform, you know, that governments back in conformity with um, master criteria and so forth. So, you know, I, look, I, I'm with you completely. And, and you know, basically, for, the, for those of you who are new to this game, there's basically a bunch of countries called the Frugal Four, Germany, Netherlands, Austria, sometimes Finland in there. Uh, they're always obsessed with balancing budgets. And then you have, frankly, the rest of us. And that's the, that's the trade-off and that's the way it plays out. Let's just go back before we go, Stephanie, to MMT. What you are arguing for, which I find fascinating, is really for humans to look at money differently. That's what you're saying. You're saying, is that a fair assessment? You're saying, we've thought about money in one way. What about thinking about it in another way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, when we hear our politicians talk about wanting to do something ambitious, fix infrastructure, provide health care or education or whatever, so often the first question they're confronted with from some journalist, you know, on the morning news or whatever is, where will you find the money? That question, find the money, right, suggests that we're on some kind of Easter egg hunt or on a gold standard. You got to go look for where is the stuff? Find it. It's in a hole in the ground. It's, and that is very broken thinking. We are in the modern era where if in our case, the U.S. case, if Congress um, passes a bill, the votes are the money. The votes are where the money comes from. If the votes are there, the money goes out. So this $1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief package, Congress didn't go find money to do that. They didn't go to China. They didn't come to the taxpayer and ask everybody to pony up a little bit to help out in this relief program. They appropriate the funds, which is to say they vote for it and the money goes out. And how does that happen? Because the government has a bank called the Federal Reserve and the Fed's job is in part to carry out all of the payments that are authorized by Congress on behalf of the United States Treasury. So that's how it happens. The, the Fed marks up the size of the appropriate bank accounts. If you're getting one of these $1,400 checks that are hitting many people's accounts this weekend, uh, that is a digital spreadsheet entry. They pop up in your checking account. People are going to have $1,400 they didn't have a minute ago because somebody typed it into the computer. And nobody needs to pay. Well, the government is paying. And yeah. this is where we, you started off talking about Thatcher. This is what Thatcher wanted to deny. She wanted to deny the existence of public money. She said, the government has no money of its own. There is only taxpayer money. That is wrong. There is public money. And we are proving it time and time again here with our sure. response to COVID. So, And we've proved it in Ireland. I mean, you know, this time last year, we did a balanced budget. We don't have one now. And everyone is getting paid and nobody's working. And it's working. Exactly. Exactly. Stephanie, I will leave there. This has been, as always, fascinating. And I hope to see you in the flesh at some stage when we can, when we can travel at least. And you've got to come back over and see us. I can't wait. I got my first shot. I can't wait for the next one. And then, God willing, let's all get back to 
something that feels more normal. Brilliant. Cheers, Steffi. Take care. Thank you, David. Thanks. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know what, Mac? Do you know what's really troubling me? <laughs> There's many things. Many really things are. But... We've been doing this podcast now for nearly two years, actually. Yep. And, you know, I've boned up on economics. Like like most of our listeners, we've all been on this journey learning about economics and stuff. But what's really troubling me is that I've come to the realisation that I actually don't understand money. I mean, my accountant, Al, would always say that anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I actually, you know, when she was talking about how deficits work and, you know, you just print the stuff, I can't quite get my head around it. Can you just bring me back to basics and, and just lead me through this? If it's any consolation, John, I actually believe that most economists don't understand money. Ooh. Now, I really do, that they take a, we, they, we, take a very narrow-gauged attitude to money, which is that if you print money, mm -hmm. that the only thing that we really happens is inflation takes off. Yeah. The best way to look at money is money is a technology invented by humans to organize our society. So think about that, right? Yeah. That, that basically humans were sitting, think about the hunter-gatherers. We're all sitting around doing our thing, right? And then you see we begin to settle down into quite complex societies, towns, urban societies with priests and warriors and kings and all the stuff you know from archaeology, right? Yeah. And then you think, what was the unifying gelling agent of these societies when we went from being hunter-gatherers to being urbanized, okay? It was some technology that organized the whole thing right? Now, there's two or three ways you can do this. One is you can actually do it through forcing people yeah. top down. You will do this, you will do that. There's another way of looking at it, that money was actually a technology created by humans from the bottom up to organize the way we lived, to motivate us, to incentivize us, to create stratas and structures and social hierarchies because yeah. people want more money, 
were richer and they had better status, people less money, to actually put a universal value on things. This is the revolutionary idea of money, mm. is this idea of a universal value, that we all understand that, you know, a glass of beer, a pint, is worth a fiver. But For a fiver, I have to work X amount of hours. For that, I have to do. So this sure. idea of a universal value. So I'm just talking, conceptually, money is about a technology that signals to us, to all of us, what things are worth, what their value is. But, but you know, I always thought that, and maybe this is backward thinking, but when we value something, we confer more value on something due to its scarcity. And very, very good question. Is this kind of gold standard thinking that I'm stuck in? Well, actually, it is kind of gold standard thinking in the sense that what makes money really valuable is not its scarcity, but its abundance, right? Now, this sounds weird, okay? Uh, yeah, I don't understand Because money that. is a social technology, right? Mm. It brings people together. So if you think about what money did, money allowed people to trade in the first place, right? Then you trade, you bring people together. When you bring people together, people collaborate. The great thing about humanity is its collaboration makes us successful. So the, why, what is the secret of human success as an animal? It's not that we're competitive, that economists talk about, that we compete with each other. It's actually that we collaborate with each other. So what makes us collaborative is whatever brings us together, right? right. So what brings us together is a universal norm, a value, like a religion. Mm. And money is, again, nothing more than a, an invented concept of value that we all abide by or decide to go by, right? So therefore, there is a huge distinction between the attitude that says scarcity offers value. So that means that the less money that goes around, the more valuable it is, right? Yeah, yeah. But in actual fact, the opposite is the case. Money derives its value from its ability to bring people together from its ability to actually be the incentive structure that creates innovation, ideas, whatever, right? So people do things for money. Yeah. So if you decide, therefore, and this is where Stephanie's onto something, which I think is much, much bigger than just MMT. I think it's a huge revolution the way we think. If you decide that we will keep money scarce, right, like gold, Yeah. what you do then is you trample on the dreams and aspirations of millions of people who don't have it. What we know is that if you give money to people, if you make money abundant, what you will do, you will facilitate extraordinary innovation, right? So most people who are born poor don't achieve their full potential because they don't have enough money. But if you think that money is a technology, then giving people money will create huge opportunities. A bit like, again, Collison was talking last week about the impact of YouTube on people in Africa who can learn stuff that used to be only the preserve of people who could afford to go to Trinity College or right. who could afford to go to Harvard, right? right okay. So it's a democratization of information. If you look at what Stephanie's saying, it's the democratization of money, that there has been an entire upper echelon of economics which worshipped at the altar of scarce money, or hard money, as it's called. Yeah. And in so doing, has retarded the ability of the economy to grow dramatically. So if, in the extreme, you continue to print money and give it to people, and if, in the extreme, that causes inflation, 
Inflation is nothing more than money losing its value because there's too much of it around. Yeah. Then what Stephanie's saying is there's a simple solution to that. You just raise taxes. That takes money out of the system. It goes from the economy back to the government institutions. The government institutions just sit on the money mm. until inflation falls again, and then they reissue it. So what she's saying mm -hmm. is economics has got the world backwards. Economics starts with this idea that you need to raise taxes in order to spend, right? Yeah. But she's saying, hold on a second. There was money in the first place. What did you raise taxes from was money. So you printed money first to give to people in order to raise taxes because you're raising taxes in money. <laughs> right, okay, yeah, yeah, So yeah. It's, a, it's a revolutionary idea. And actually, in fact, like a lot of revolution... It's turning my head inside no, out. No, but if you think about it, there was, a, not that long ago in human history, doctors believed that leeches were the source of all cures, that we would take blood out of people yeah. in order to cure them. So George Washington, to stick with the Americans, mm. was leached to death. Do you know that happened to him? He got a sore throat and they put, applied leeches to him and they absorbed so much blood out of the fucker's body, he died. <laughs> right? These were the best physicians in America with the most important citizen right. of the United so States. So we're going to be taxed to death. Is that what no, you're saying? No, my point is, my point is, is that sometimes when you make big innovations, big, big moves, the old world just looks really stupid. Really, really dumb. And I'm of the view that what Stephanie's saying is a revolutionary moment in our understanding of money. Mm. Much more so than government. I, I think she talks about government a lot, but I think it's much deeper than that. I think what she's talking about is a revolution in our conception of where money comes from. The amazing thing about money is that while we all think about money all the time, do I have enough of it? Mm. I'd like more of it. That'll be great to buy something. We never think of where does it come from? Yeah. Right? And when you start thinking of where does it come from? Okay, like a kid would ask. My kids used to ask years ago, Dad, where does money come from? It's from the money tree, of from course. From the money tree. <laughs> what if there is a money tree? That's the point. What she's saying is <laughs> that there could well be a situation where we decide that money is the least of our worries. Think about this, right? Mm -hmm. That we give people like the universal basic income. We give people 20 grand a year, yeah. right? And that's where we start. So the, you don't have to worry about your basics. And then we watch inflation. If inflation takes off, then we take money out by taxation. Right. But we don't start with taxation as being the legitimate permission giver for countries to spend or people to mm. spend. And then she talked about the difference between private and public money. It's yeah, all those, actually, the private and public money thing really confused me. Because if you follow that train of thought, I started thinking at the end, why should I pay taxes then? Will they you, don't need it to you, to pay for roads and school teachers and, and what she's saying and, is she's right. We do not. The idea that there's a national balance sheet is total nonsense. This is the key, right? That we don't have, it's not like a household. So the difference between the issuer and the user. Yeah. So the issuer of money of the currency has no downside. There's no limit to what you can do. The user of the currency, because like, you know, it's like Paul McCulley said, you know, your children think you're an issuer of currency. It's like, I <laughs> yeah. could have 10 or I could have 20 quid, yeah. you know, whatever, right? It's like Cal coming down. Yeah, there's a little, little machine here that I print the money, right? So I'm a user, so I'm in my head used to budget constraints. We cannot do this because we don't have the money. Yeah. In a family, right? Yeah. But the state doesn't have this. And what she's also saying 
is that the ECP, I think it's really fascinating, has kind of waltzed itself up a cul-de-sac because they started 20 years ago. She talked about the Maastricht Treaty, right? Yeah. I remember working on, like, very, very junior submissions to that in the in the 1990s, right? And what was a given was that central banks needed to act in a way to discipline governments for not spending money, too much money. Right. But in actual fact, that's the wrong way around. Central banks and governments are two arms of the same institution, which is the state. So what she's saying is, and I think it's, it is really, really fascinating, is that the budget constraint is a fictitious idea. And she's saying also that in Europe, the central bank has waltzed itself up this cul-de-sac. You, it's very, very hard now for the ECB to go back to 1990s, early 2000 thinking. Because yeah. if they say to Italy or Spain or Ireland, okay, you've now got to cut your budget deficit, what will happen will be a massive, massive current account crisis. Money will leave our countries, like happened to Greece in 2012, 2013, 14. So in a way, in all but name, the ECB is following the same policy as the Fed, which is that we will make legitimate every single borrowing requirement. And then what they're going to do is they will signal to governments to raise taxes, to take money out of the system if inflation is taking off. Right. Now, inflation will take off at full employment. There's no doubt of that. So when unemployment falls to maybe 2 or 3%, the economy will be running at full capacity, and then it's time to tax. And to well, what does that do to, on a political level then? Because then people get pissed off that our taxes are shooting up. So what you've got to do is you've got to turn things on its head and say the role of government and elected representatives mm. is to be sufficiently disciplined that when you see inflation emerging, you increase taxes. The downside of what Stephanie's saying is what people say, well, will a politician ever vote to raise taxes because that's unpopular? Yeah. So for the last 20 years, we've outsourced that job to central banks. So rather than raise taxes, the central banks raise interest rates, which has the same impact as raising taxes. It slows the economy down because oh, okay. it increases the price of money. Right. But what she's saying is think about the world in a totally new way, where the Congress in the United States or the Parliament or the Doyle here is making those decisions about inflation. And when it happens that we see inflation, then you increase taxes. What that does is that takes money out of the system. So she's saying that you start with the idea that the government deficit is somebody else's surplus. That's the simple idea. Right, yeah. And the somebody else happens to be the recipients of government spending. If they're really rich people, like was the case when Donald Trump cut taxes, they benefit. But if they're poor people, like what's happening now with the Democrats, they benefit. And as long as you keep inflation as your target you can really manipulate the economy in a fascinating way. And the interesting thing is that this is completely at odds with everything we've thought, because for most people, this sounds like a socialist country, right? Mm, but mm. what she's saying, it doesn't have to be. What you just have to do is you think about money in a different way, and you realize that money incentivizes people, it motivates people. But a final problem with money, before we go, is the hoarding of money. Yeah. Why rich people hoard. And there's lots of other ideas. There's a fascinating idea that money should have a time value. Mm -hmm. That in actual fact, money 
could have a sell-by date. Well, so you have to spend so it. You have to spend it. So you can't hoard it. Yeah. Right? Well, so my, my, my tenor here runs out in June 1st. Your tenor runs out in June 1st, let's say 2025. Right. But every year it runs out more. So spend it quickly. Right. And that would prevent people hoarding money. And that would prevent the hyper-rich. See, what happens... But that would lead to inflation, though. That... Yeah, but then you, then you raise taxes. But the point is... Right. Pisses... It's a really fine balancing act. But it, let's, let's have this intellectual game of gymnastics, right? And yeah. think what could be possible. That you could have a situation where you prevent the hoarding of money. I mean, the problem with rich people, with really rich people, is they've got too much money, right? Yeah. And they don't spend it. That's why they have all these Davies things of little <laughs> offshore accounts and shite like that, right? <laughs> Could you imagine you said to me, look, if you make a hundred quid, you make a million quid, you got to spend it in five years. Right. The dynamic of that would be amazing because everybody would be constantly innovating all the time and nobody would be hoarding because hoarding would be something that we make illegal, not by virtue of the hoarding instinct, but by virtue of the fact that we say, well, you know, that money is going to be actually go to zero, it's value in the next five years. That's a fascinating way to look at it. It's a great way to look at it. And it's all to play for. Now, why I have you there again. Why not use the time when you're locked up to learn economics? Join me on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Let's learn economics together. We have the economics course. Macroeconomics has never been as essential to understand. We have the Ask Mac tutorials every other week. We have Q&A. We've got the reading list. And more importantly, you become part of the community. If you have a question, if you have something that's going on, you want to ask me, join me on Patreon email in I will answer your question but more importantly it's ad free just you and me and your man across the way hey patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams and let's figure out the world together Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.